Hey everybody, welcome into the I Want to Know podcast. I am your host, Greg Jones, and I am the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. I hope you guys are having a great holiday season. New Year's is right about now-ish, depending on when you're listening to this show. I hope you guys have a great New Year, and I thought in preparation for New Year's and for a new 2016, I thought I would have another guest on that was uh, inspiring and motivational. And I will tell you all about him in just a second. First, I want to thank you guys for a super awesome 2015. I want to thank you for listening to the show and turning it on to your friends and family and everybody else. Please don't stop. Please keep telling people in 2016 about the I Want to Know podcast. One of the things I hear most often from people is, wow, that sounds really interesting. I'd love to listen to it. And I just tell them, okay, listen to it. You know, what's, what's stopping you? And uh, sometimes... It's the whole podcast medium and, you know, not real tech savvy. So please just tell them, go to IWantToKnowShow.com. Whether it's on a phone or a computer or a tablet, you can always listen to the show there. And there are also links to uh, various iTunes and other apps to listen to it. So tell your friends, IWantToKnowShow.com. Anyways, enough about that and uh, enough about a pending 2016. Let's talk about today's guest. His name is Jeff Raisley. Jeff started off as a successful lawyer for 30 years, was a founding partner at a law firm, and he got to a point in his life where he didn't want to do that anymore. His wife told him, you're starting to show signs of midlife crisis. I need you to do something about it. Short version of the story, Jeff decided to climb some mountains and it turned into some real nice, inspiring philanthropic work that he's doing now. So I have Jeff on the show to tell us all about that. Before we hear from him, just so you know, you can get him at Jeff Raisley. It's R-A-S-L-E-Y dot com. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Raisley and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Jeff Raisley. Over at his website, you can get books that he's written, articles that he's written, uh, other interviews he's done. So make sure you check him out. All right, everybody, I'm being joined on Skype by Jeff Raisley. He, well, I would run down all his stats like I normally do on the show, but there's so many of them. I figured I'd let him give us a little bit about what, what he does, what he did, and what he's trying to do. Jeff, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. How are you, Greg? Good. Thanks for joining us. Happy to. Reading your biography, quite the list of uh, you know accomplishments from school to work life to what you're doing now in the nonprofit you know, field. Can you give us a you know the summary about Jeff? Yeah, I'll I'll give you a, a new age uh, mom's Christmas card summary. <laughs> So I, I grew up in a small town in northern Indiana called Goshen, um, played a lot of sports uh, growing up. And when I got to be 18 and out of high school, um, my parents ordered me to go to college. Uh, and I even had a scholarship. But after a semester, dropped out, was uh, really tired of living in a small town, and I was going to the college just down the street from where we lived. So I walked to the edge of town, stuck my thumb out, hitchhiked across the country, fell in love with travel and adventure, uh, which has been a big part of my life ever since. But uh, I did manage to graduate from, from college and at the University of Chicago, Went to law school, uh, got a law degree, practiced law for 30 years, retired a few years ago. And uh, while I was practicing law, I also went to seminary and got a master's in divinity and came very close to leaving law to go into ministry, but uh, 
opted for the money instead of the uh, priestly garb <laughs> and um, have uh, been involved in, in a lot of philanthropic work all the way back to high school. My girlfriend and I organized uh, the first Walk for Hunger in Goshen, Indiana and have just um, you know felt uh, probably from my upbringing in the church that those of us who are able, we ought to try to give back, and especially to those less fortunate than ourselves. And I eventually began kind of focusing my adventure travel on mountaineering and trekking in the Himalayas and had um, had an, uh, a terrible and amazing, both a terrible and amazing experience over there on a mountaineering expedition in which uh, three local guys, Nepalese guys, were killed uh, near me in an avalanche. Wow. And uh, it, it made me really rethink what I was doing as an adventure traveler, a mountaineer, um, putting other people's lives in danger uh, just to give us, you know, well-off Americans uh, a cool experience and so really tried to <clears throat> figure out if I should just quit doing that if that would be the philanthropic thing to do but uh, I had the wonderful experience after that of connecting with Sir Edmund Hillary's family uh, I didn't actually meet him because he was too old and infirm to come up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. But on the 50th anniversary of the first summit of Mount Everest, which was in 2003, uh, I met Hillary's son, Peter, and, and a bunch of the Hillary clan, including Sir Edmund's older sister, June, and uh, hiked with them up in the Himalayas around Mount Everest wow. and learned a lot about Hillary's life. And what really struck me was even though he had became become one of the most famous people of the 20th century, after he did that, instead of just going on speaking tours and basking in his glory, writing books, making money, he spent the rest of his life um, devoting a good chunk of it to um, helping improve the uh, lives of the Sherpa people, who he felt very indebted to, who had you know, really uh, helped him to become famous by helping him summit Mount Everest with his partner, uh, Tenzing Norgay Sherpa. And um, it, was, it was very inspiring uh, to me, so I decided what I would do is become more serious and, and directed about combining uh, adventure travel with philanthropy. Even coined a term which I've used in a couple books I've written, philanthro-trekking. So, yeah, so, you know, combining trekking with philanthropy. And um, my, the latest project I worked on is uh, a few years uh, ago with, with some friends, both here in the U.S. and over in Nepal, started a foundation called the Basa Village Foundation. And because there were terrible earthquakes in Nepal this year, which really devastated the country, um, millions of people homeless, about 10,000 people killed. Um, we've been doing fundraisers uh, to uh, help buy materials to rebuild 
per particularly in this one area, the Basa village area, but to rebuild villages, uh, schools, and so forth. So, uh, long-winded summary, <laughs> but uh, for, there you go, from high school to uh, the Nepal earthquake. Long-winded but necessary. Um, let me get back to your background before we get into Nepal and the earthquake and the mountain climbing. Um, first, you said you left law at 55 to, to pursue these uh, endeavors. First, I'd like to know what type of lawyer you were. Well, uh, my practice was was really very diverse. I started out working for legal services organization, doing poverty law and social justice, class action law. Uh, and then I, I went from that to the other side of the well, from the light to the dark, uh, <laughs> went, to, went to work for a big corporate law firm, learned the business side of law, and then with two of my best friends in that firm, we struck out, started our own firm, and from uh, then on for really the last, oh, uh, 20, 25 years of my career, uh, I was in a small firm and eventually was the senior partner in a very small firm, uh, just two lawyers and a small office staff and then uh, was bought out by agreement uh, by my younger partner. And was it hard to leave? That's Not at all, Greg. <laughs> Not at all. Let me say that with three exclamation marks. <laughs> I mean, you know, all the jokes about lawyers and uh, the, the negative press lawyers get, it's only 99% true. Oh man, so we're close. <laughs> yeah, there there's a there's a lot of, there's a lot of great things about practicing law. You can do good for a lot of people, help people out of, you know, really uh tough situations and, sure. and in my my own firm, we even though we were small, we had a general practice and tried to, you know, tried to do all kinds of different law, whatever our clients needed help with. But there's also a lot of real ickiness that goes with the law. I mean, you see the worst of people a, a lot, <laughs> and, and you see it in other lawyers. Uh, I mean, you know, the system is designed on winning. You know, we in the law and in law school, you learn uh, uh, that we say it's based on fairness, justice, but it's really all about winning um, and, and money. And uh, which is not to say there aren't a lot of ethical and, um, you know, idealistic lawyers, uh, but the, most of them are business people. They're in it for the money and they're in it to win. <clears throat> and, um, you know, for somebody that cares about ethics and compassion for other people at, at times, it's, uh, it's, it's icky. Yeah, and imagine, and, and the whole thing to being a good businessman is you got to win in order to make more money and to make more money you got to win so it just keeps you know becoming a more vicious cycle i guess that's right and i don't want to sound like some prima donna um you know holier than now because <laughs> i'm competitive I, I was an athlete i want to win and when i had a case you know i was like most other lawyers i did my best to win for my client and you probably would select cases that you knew you had a better chance of winning yeah, and there's usually an economic side to that. Uh, you know, I mean, there are some rich people and some companies that 
even though you tell them this is a losing case, they're willing to pay to you know go through the motions for whatever reasons. But you know, in most cases, you you evaluate a case, and and if you're you know a good lawyer, you explain to your client. You know, here's your chances of winning and losing. This is my uh, opinion of how this case is going to work out. And you do an economic analysis uh, with the client and and then, you know, hope that they make the right decision uh, really for themselves. Uh, because if, you know, if you've got a good business, if this case doesn't go with this client, there's another knocking on your door. So Sure. All right, jumping ahead a little bit, what... Uh, what spurred you to go on that first trek to the Himalayas? Well, um, I had turned 40, and I, I, I was, according to my wife, manifesting midlife crisis symptoms. <laughs> All right. And I, I think it was, I, I was not able to, to travel as much as I had been used to when I was younger. Uh, had a, I was the head of a small law firm, um, you know, house, two-car garage, mortgage, two kids, young kids, and life just felt kind of closing in on me. Not, you know, not that there was anything wrong. It's like, this is all great. This is the American dream. But my freedom felt really restricted. Sure. And so it, it, was, it was bothering me even though, you know, I didn't fully understand probably what it was all about because I was just focused on you know getting through the day <laughs> so one day I come home from the office and my wife slaps down in front of me on the dining room table a brochure about trekking in the Himalayas and says why don't you go do this so she's telling me go take a hike and do it on the other side of the world and it was like yeah, that is exactly the prescription for the medicine I need. <laughs> so uh, a fr I, I told a friend about it. Um, he was actually my chiropractor. Oh. And uh, Dr. John and I signed up, uh, joined a trekking group, uh, flew over to Nepal, and spent a couple weeks hiking uh, up the Mount Everest Base Camp Trail. Um, and I, I fell in love with the mountains. You know, I live in Indiana, the Midwest. We don't have mountains. <laughs> Pretty flat out there. Uh, as I mean, I knew nothing about mountaineering or climbing or any of that. It was a completely new world to me. But I was, I was really turned on by it. And, and I also was really impressed with uh, the Nepalese people, especially the high mountain people, um, they have this wonderful combination of extraordinary strength, endurance, toughness, and gentleness. And uh, it, it, was, it was just, it really touched me um, how these uh, people related to each other, related to me in this combination of uh, toughness and, and gentleness. And so I wanted, you know, I wanted to go back. And so I took... Um, couple rock climbing courses out in uh, West Virginia, nearest place uh, that had those sort of skills courses available. And then I signed up for a mountaineering group, and the leader of the group was a guy named John Rosskelly, who's, um, if, if you were into mountaineering, you'd probably heard of him. He was a 
uh, a famous American mountaineer, and he's written some books. and okay. And he was a, a great leader. He he really taught me mountaineering on uh, the first climb I did, which is it was called a mountain called Kangla Chen, at the very northern tip of India, right uh, on the Tibet India Pakistan border. And after that, I just I started going back every year or two and doing another climb and. And eventually began leading climbing and trekking groups myself. And um, in uh, n- uh, 1999 was when that avalanche occurred. And and I thought, okay, I'm, that's it. I'm not going to do this anymore. But got talked into going back for the 50th anniversary celebration of uh, the, the first summit of Everest in 2003 and then like I said met the Hillary's and and developed a new direction which was I would uh, try to actually go every year but uh, organize a group and combine it with a philanthropic effort and and I'd already done uh, several little little philanthropic projects like you know take school supplies and clothes and to a school or um, to an orphanage, um, raise a little money and, and buy some supplies in Nepal, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But so now I decided to be really more directed about it and, uh, organized a foundation, gathered a group of, of friends to help support it. And, um, combined with, a, a, a group in Nepal, um, which was started by the owner of the trekking company that, I was using as, as my local outfitter, um, and most of the guys in that company lived in a, a little village called Basa, which is remote up in the mountains and not on any trekking trails. And so uh, one of the really cool things we did, and, and his name, the Nepalese guy who owns the company, is, is Niru Rai, um, we organized a trek to Basa of... Um, some folks who had donated to our foundation. And it was only the second time that uh, Basa Village had hosted what they call white people. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and, and it was an amazing experience. Just we, we were actually literally covered with flowers when we entered the village. Uh, the entire village was waiting for us and showered us with flowers uh, every family wanted us to visit their home. Uh, they they fed us. They, they kept on. They, there's a local drink called Roxy, okay. which is their local white lightning. And every home has a still, and and they all wanted us to drink theirs. <laughs> so, oh dear. Uh, one member of our group doesn't have much of a memory. <laughs> uh, I was smart enough to uh, to just uh, pour out my cups when they weren't looking, but but yeah, it was an amazing experience, and so that inspired the first book that I wrote about uh, philanthro trekking in Nepal, which is called um, "Bringing Progress to Paradise: What I Got from Giving to a Mountain Village." And then that also kind of spurred my writing career, which um, I'd, I'd been writing articles off and on all through uh, really since high school. Um, but I finally got around to writing a full-length book because that experience gave me enough material to do it. 
Yeah. All right. You spurred so many questions. Uh, first, I'm a little surprised to hear that the villagers weren't afraid of white people. <laughs> well, the only contact they'd had with uh, outsiders, Westerners, uh, you could say, was through two ways. One is many of the men in the village worked in the trekking industry. They're, they're all subsistence farmers. There's, you know, there's no commerce, there's no industry right. in the village. Um, there aren't even any stores. And, and then, this was in 2008, they didn't even use money. Uh, it was all barter system. But, uh, but the men worked in the trekking industry as porters, cooks, guides, and they would get paid. And, and they would be exposed to people like me, mountaineers and trekkers. And, uh, and then with the money they earned, they could buy things and come back, you know, in the big cities and the market towns, come back to the village. So that was very positive. And then the, set, the other experience is the first group of white people that had ever come were a group of um, can, French Canadians who came uh, to help build the village school. No, oh. and so the only experience they'd had with white people were, you know, very positive ones, and um, and they knew we were coming, and they knew that uh, I had been working with Nehru, and and just before this, we are my first joint project with Nehru through the Basa Village Foundation was to raise five thousand um, dollars, which paid for the materials to uh, add an addition to the school. Uh, so the school only had three grades. And so Nehru had asked if, if I could raise $5,000 as our first project together. And then with that, he could buy all the materials to build the addition, add the two grades, and pay two more teacher salaries for three years. Uh, which, if you think about it, to build... To, to build two classrooms, pay two teachers for three years, $5,000. That's, That's insane. hell of a bargain. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I wish we could do that out here. Yeah, really. But so, um, so we had already uh, raised that money, and the villagers you know, knew that, uh, that my group and me were, uh, were people who had helped do that. So, yeah, they were very happy to see us. And I've been back to the village five times uh, since then, and we're welcomed the same way every time. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Going back to your first trek that your wife sent you out on, you know, you've always uh, been, sounds like you've always been a traveler. You've always been a little bit of a philanthropist. How did that first trip kind of feel to, you know, how did it change your outlook? How did it fix your midlife crisis symptoms? How did it all work for you? Well, I think, Getting away from my ordinary life for three weeks, um, when it was really very busy, very stressful, uh, just having that time away, and much of the time away was spent where my only responsibility was to put one foot in front of the other. You know, just move at my pace up this trail in, in this just incredibly spectacular, majestic country. I mean, you know, the biggest mountains in the world. It, the the stress vanished. The 
the sense of feeling closed in and trapped by life, um, by the circumstances of my life vanished, and also being exposed to people who lived at just a more basic level um, and were very happy. You know, seeing how uh, these folks um, living in these what you know we would call really rough or even primitive circumstances were happier than most Americans uh, that I knew um, because they weren't stressed. You know, they, I mean, they had worries. They had to worry about the weather. Could they get their crops in? But, you know, they didn't have radios. They didn't have TVs. Um, they weren't bothered by all the bad news that were bombarded with every day. Uh, it was all, for their world is lived very much in family and the relationships of their villages. And, um, you know, they, they had fun. They get together to sing and dance and drink and eat. And, you know, that's their entertainment. It's all about human relationships. And, uh, you know, they weren't living through screens and keyboards and, <laughs> and cell phones. And so I think it, it helped give me a better perspective on how I don't have to be the prisoner of all these other influences. And I can... You know, and all of us can take better control of our lives and and really decide. You know, how do we want to live? Who do we want to be? And uh, yeah, so that's you know that's a message I brought back. It's not exactly that anybody told me that, but it just sort of sunk in. And it's also something we all know. It's like this very simple, deep wisdom we all have, but we forget because life gets so complicated and busy and I remembered it and so since then I've I've tried to uh, be something of a preacher and preach that message uh, through my books and and I do a fair amount of uh, public speaking and uh, I teach a class at uh, Butler University now and then uh, every couple semesters which is about philanthropy and I lead a class at a local Quaker meeting house uh, every Sunday and so that's you know, that's become you know part of my mission you mentioned earlier that uh, you received a, a master's in divinity which if I'm not mistaken is a Christianity based uh, you know degree and you've written this book Godless Living a Valuable Life Beyond Beliefs and you, you're preaching at Quaker uh, uh, rooms and such so are you a religious person? Are you, what would you describe yourself as? Well, I'm philosophically an agnostic in the sense that I don't think we can know the answer to even the, you know, the most basic religious question, which is, does God exist? Sure. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, and you, you can choose to believe or not believe. And, in my case, what I, the way I have developed spiritually is to not care at all about an organized religion. Um, I did. I grew up a Presbyterian. I was very active in the church for a long time, um, and, and I'm active to a point with uh, my local Quaker meeting. Um, but 
for the most part, I see organized religion as a detrimental influence on human relations because so much of its message is we have the truth and you don't. Yeah. If you don't believe what we believe, you're not only wrong, you're a heretic. <laughs> and then, true. and you know, the more extreme ones go so far as to say, and we should kill you <laughs> because right. you don't share our beliefs. And, and while religion, organized religion has done a lot of wonderful things and good things, I mean, the, the, so much art has been inspired by it. But on the other hand, it's done so many bad things, horrible things. So the way I have tried to live for a number of years now is to take from organized religion the best of it, which is the community. So I like being involved with my Quaker meeting. Um, the beauty, participating in, in singing and, and meditating, um, you know, the beauty of worship service. Um, but to not advocate or fall into the trap of you know, claiming that this particular religion, religion has the truth and that one doesn't. And so the, the title of that book, which is the last book I wrote, um, re reflects my own spiritual journey starting out as a fairly fundamentalist Calvinist Presbyterian and eventually being liberated from the burden of those beliefs. And one of the great influences uh, on that has helped open my mind, I experienced in Nepal. Um, first, it was the Buddhism of the Sherpas, but then, uh, but ultimately, Buddhism is, is just like all the other organized religions. There are good things, bad things. Um, but the people that live in Basa, they don't have a religion exactly. They are what uh, Western anthropologists would call animists, which means they believe that there's a sacred spirit in everything. I mean, everything. Mm -hmm. This the, the computer I'm talking into, the <laughs> cup of coffee that's warming my hand, the, sure. the tree in my yard, you know, whether it's animate, inanimate, human, animal, plant, rock, they think there is is spirit in everything. And the effect of this is that you then respect everything. And it creates this, you know, that gentle spirit I was talking about, mm -hmm. combined with this toughness, the strength. Um, that's where I see is the basis for this, this gentleness because if you really think that everything can be affected by you, either positive or negatively, and, and you want to be a positive force in the world, then um, you, you, know, you, you become an environmentalist. You become a humanitarian, a philanthropist. You, you are aware of trying to be uh, a force for good. And just to give you, I, I give this example often, and so I was walking down a trail with my friend Ganas Rai, um, who's from Basa, mm -hmm. he's a, one of our guides, and there's a rock in the trail, and I'm about to kick it out of the way, and he steps in front of me, and he just moves the rock to the side of the trail. 
And I said, Ganas, you know, what did you do that for? And he says, Jeff die. Uh, rock has spirit. Be respectful of rock. And that, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's an extreme case, but it, it shows the difference in, you know, if you really start respecting everything, how far that, you know, think if we all lived like that, what a better place the world would be. Just think if we all even just respected other people, let alone rocks and bugs and plants and other things like that, it'd be so much better. Yes, indeed. So many questions about the Bossa Village. I guess uh, for, well, the one thing I want to know is how does your wife, uh, how did she react to your kind of spiritual change after you came back from your original trip? Well, my wife grew up uh, Roman Catholic. And by the time she graduated from high school, she was very happy to leave that religion behind. Um, she saw a lot wrong um, with Roman Catholicism and really wanted to have nothing to do with organized religion after that. And so I was the religious person in, in our marriage um, she agreed to, when our kids were growing up, I wanted them to be brought up in the Presbyterian church. She ag agreed and, you know, sort of dutifully joined the church and went along with it, but thought it was basically a bunch of crap. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, but kept it to, to private conversation. Right. Um, but, uh, I mean, she, she thought the church itself, was, you know, was full of, of wonderful, nice people. Um, but in terms of the, the doctrines and creeds and dogmas and all the belief stuff, uh, she thought it was fairly silly. And, and eventually, you know, we kind of reached a point of, of agreement because in, in my spiritual journey, as I let go of all of those beliefs, we found ourselves, you know, more and more... Uh, agreeing on the, those sort of fundamental philosophical and theological points. Um, and so uh, we used to have spirited arguments about that sort of thing. <laughs> now, now we tend to just, you know, nod and uh-huh <laughs> when, when that topic comes up. Sure. Um, if you were to ask somebody from the Boss Village what religion they are, would, do they identify with any religion? Yeah, what they would say is they would say we are Rai. Uh, the Rai people are a a tribal ethnic group in Nepal, like the Sherpa people. Okay. Um, and so they've developed certain customs and, and practices and traditions that you could call religious. Uh, they, they have a, a shaman uh, every... Uh, area will have at least one shaman. Um, they have wedding ceremonies, which are huge parties that will last for a week. Um, nice. And they have holy places that they think are, uh, like near Basa, there's a, a, a holy cave and a holy tree, a huge uh, banyan-like tree um, where uh, ceremonies are taking place. But they don't have, the, first of all, they don't have a written language. So they don't have a holy book. Uh, they don't have a prophet or the founder of a religion. Um, it, it really, it's more of an attitude towards life 
and the way to live along with, um, you know, ways to, uh, to express gratitude um, for life and to expe- express special respect at certain times of like births and weddings and death. And are there, uh, I guess, roots of Buddhism in that at all? Well, the Rai people are squeezed between Hindus and Buddhists. And so a lot of their, uh, the, the ceremonial aspects and some of their stories, because they do have or an oral tradition of stories, are influenced by Hinduism and Buddhism. Okay. But, the, but they, they would not say, I'm a Buddhist or I'm a Hindu. They would say, I'm Rai. And some of them, like my friend uh, Ganas, would say, who's, who's a guide, so he you know, travels through all these different areas, he would say, when I go to a Hindu temple, I am Hindu. If I go to a Buddhist gompa, uh, I am Buddhist. If I come to a Christian church, I am Christian. Because <laughs> so, there's, you know, they're sort of like free to, uh, because, you know, their religion just, you know, doesn't have this strict set of doctrines that you're, you're, you're supposed to adhere to and believe in to be a good rye. So it's more about, it uh, sounds like, uh, respect, as you said, and really all around peacefulness. Yeah, it is. Um, and, I mean, I guess you could say they do have this fundamental belief that there is spirit in everything because, you know, as a skeptical Western empiricist, I could say, well, you know, prove it. Show me that that rock has spirit. And Sure. So, so they say, well, I, I believe it does. Um, but it's, again, it's really more just an attitude, you know, just that attitude of respect. I like it. Um, let's talk about the Bossa Village Foundation. Excuse me. Um, what what got you to start this foundation? Well, <laughs> what got me to start it was uh, I had started using Nuru Rai's uh, trekking uh, company, which is called Adventure Geotrex, uh, as my outfitter, the one I was uh, hiring to handle uh, a group I would organize to, to go over and do a trek or a mountaineering expedition. And he, uh, he just asked me, uh, would you raise $5,000 so that we could add a fourth and a fifth grade to our village school? And by the time he asked me that, I'd gotten to know him I got to know a lot of men from the village uh, because of having trekked and climbed with them. I mean, I, sure. I, even though they were in a way either my contractors or my employees, you know, they were my friends. I mean, you get close to people when you're on an expedition and you're sleeping in tents and, and hiking and climbing every day. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, so I, I already kind of thought of, of Basa. Uh, as uh, a place I cared about, even though I'd never been there, just because all these folks I had come to really care about were from Bassa. So um, when he asked me that, it wasn't like just out of the blue and a, and a big surprise. I mean, I had heard about their little school, and and so I, I was really, um, you know, happy that 
he had asked to, that I could for my help. And so so that was our, our first fundraising effort and I I did it by mostly just emailing uh, friends of mine and particularly people I knew that had been to Nepal um, or were familiar with that part of the world. And, uh, you know, we, we raised the money. And then there, after that, we started talking about, well, could we create a, uh, an ongoing organization that would help, that would work with Basa Village and do other projects? And so then we thought, well, you know, what do the villagers need? Well, let's ask. And so we started having conversations. Is Nehru lives in Kathmandu now? I mean, he he grew up in Bassa, and his family home is still there. But but uh, he just goes back. It's more like sort of a summer home for him now. Mm-hmm. But so we started having conversations um, with the village, and and eventually we developed um, what I call our philosophy of philanthropy, which Nehru and I agreed on which was that we would only do projects that the village asked us for help with. We would not tell the village what it needed, that my job would be, or the job of the American side, would be to raise the money. Nehru's job, because he organized an NGO uh, in Kathmandu, would be to plan a budget to work directly with the village to make all the purchases uh, and then provide supervision. The villager's job would be to provide all the labor and then to own and run the projects when they were completed. So, for example, the school, uh, the villagers did all the labor to build it. Um, They have a school board that runs it. The next project we did was a hydroelectric system so they have their own little hydroelectric plant, which we, um, you know, uh, our foundation over here raised the money. Uh, Nehru's foundation hired a local engineer. We hired a consulting engineer here. They communicated back and forth, and the American engineer and I went over there and met with their engineer of the village. Everything planned out. Uh, they developed a budget. We approved it. The villagers built with their own hands the hydroelectric plant, which now provides them electricity. Wow. And then we've gone on and done a water project, smokeless stove projects, various supplies for the school, like uh, laptop computers. And uh, this year, we were just beginning to talk about what we thought would be our last project, which would be a system of latrines, because there aren't toilets in the village except for the school. Um, and then the earthquakes hit. So instead of trying to focus on final finalizing what we thought would be our... Because p- part of Nero's and my dream was we would turn Basa into a model village and use the way that we did this philanthropy, this partnership with the village, uh, for other villages in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, show them how we did this, but also help other villages in the same way. Uh, but then the earthquake hit, so uh, many of the homes were destroyed. Uh, the school was severely damaged, uh, and we've had to raise money to rebuild the village. 
and we're we're still in that process. It's not complete yet. And that was a huge earthquake. I think it was like a seven point nine or something. <laughs> yeah, there were actually two of them. Uh, it was a seven point nine and a seven point six. They hit within a couple weeks of each other, and the the really you know sad thing is that the first earthquake came and it was terrible and you know it killed lots of people destroyed lots of buildings but they start rebuilding and then the second earthquake came and all the rebuilding work was destroyed and it damaged even more and killed even more and then it was monsoon season and during the monsoon which is it covers all of Nepal you you really can't rebuild because it's raining every day, so they had to live most so many people. Mil, I mean, literally millions of people in Nepal and in Basa village. Uh, uh, people were living under tarps, living in tents, uh, couldn't rebuild. You know, waiting for the rains to stop, and so then uh, in October, uh, the rains. You know, about early September, the rains stop, but then the trekking season begins. And the, so many of the villagers depend on uh, getting hired in trekking companies that they leave their farms and go work on the, in, the, com- in the, the tourism business. Sure. And, and so they had to do that so they couldn't rebuild then because most of the men are off working as porters and cooks and so forth. So now that the trekking season ends um, about mid-November, and so just within the last couple of weeks, the, the rebuilding process has really started. And is it is it going to plan, or have there been any setbacks? Well, we had developed plans in terms of how to rebuild the houses, how to rebuild the school in Basa um, over the course of the summer. And we did, uh, here we did a various fundraisers and raised about $47,000 and have sent uh, that money over uh, to to buy materials. But we also, 40,000 of it went to the Basa Foundation in Nepal to rebuild uh, homes in the village and the school. Um, But we also did a couple special projects for 2,000 and 5,000 to buy a brick-making machine um, for a women's shelter and then uh, and that was the 2000 so that they could rebuild their shelter, and that's in another village. Uh, and then we also we had one special fundraiser for another uh, village uh, to rebuild their uh, village center and orphanage. Um, those are just connections with other friends of our foundation we had. So... So that's what we've done so far, but we we actually need to raise more money because um, that isn't enough money to completely rebuild Basa. And of course, there's you know hundreds of other villages that are, in, are even in worse shape than Basa. Yeah, I mean it's fantastic what's been done so far, and it's also really nice that you can raise you know around fifty thousand dollars and it actually rebuilds something. Where out here you'd have to raise millions and millions and millions of dollars to have that sort of reconstruction process going on yeah that's right and and of course because we aren't paying for labor uh the cost is materials but then the materials that we were buying they're all local i mean we're we're buying um 
basically uh, sand, gravel, stone, uh, a little bit of rebar, um, and then uh, tin roofs uh, or aluminum roofs. Uh, so it's you know the, the materials by our standard are, are pretty basic, and they're not terribly expensive. But it's just that the there's so much to rebuild. Two thirds of the houses in Bassa were either completely destroyed or structurally damaged. Um, so, you know, it, it's a lot to do. Yeah. What type of, uh, I don't know, living arrangements do the people of Boston and the surrounding villages live in? Are they kind of huts to our standard? or They actually have really attractive, pretty houses. Um, the houses are made of stone, and this, the stone, each stone is shaped by hand with wow. hand chisels. So, um, you know, the, each stone is very carefully shaped and then stacked. And then um, more mud mortar is used. Uh, the, uh, the roof is always a very colorful bright green or... Uh, uh, sky blue, so the roofs are always a green or blue because those are considered propitious colors. Hmm. And then depending on what caste you are, your house will be a color based on your caste. So that's uh, the Hinduism, you know, the effect of Hinduism. And so in in Nepal, all the houses are either white or brown. Or in Basa, I mean, the houses are all either white or brown. Um, because the only the, the only caste distinctions that are recognized in Basa are by the the farmers and then the artisans the the guy the people that make the uh, like farming implements we call them blacksmiths and the tailors the people that make hand make the clothes mm-hmm. uh, and then some of the roofs in uh, Basa are thatch uh, or wood so you have wood thatch or Tin colored tin roofs, and as you you come into one of these villages and you're you know coming in from a mountain approach, and you see it there in the distance, they're they're pretty because all the the farm country is all terraced, so you see these lovely terraces of with green and growing crops, and then these pretty little stone houses with brightly colored roofs or thatched roofs, and then inside the home. Uh, it's basically one room, and it has a big uh, circular fire pit in the middle, and all the cooking and heating is done off of that fire pit. And then there will be um, sort of what we might call a loft, where, where there will be a sort of a partial second floor where things will be stored just so there's more room uh, for living and moving around in the house. Um, and so one of the problems, though, with this, it, it, you know, I'm painting kind of a lovely but very simple picture, mm-hmm. was um, traditionally all, with all the heating and cooking done over an open fire, people were inhaling carbon smoke and carbon smoke getting into their eyes all the time. And so rampant in the Himalayas are cataracts and pulmonary disease. So one of the things that we talked through with the village and, and eventually they requested were uh, very simple what are called smokeless stoves 
and they aren't really smokeless, but what they do is they're like the old pot-bellied stoves, but they have a pipe, and so the, the smoke is piped out of the house. And so now every home in Basa has a smokeless stove either sitting on top of the fire pit or in the corner, uh, and they'll you know kind of go back and forth between the stove and the fire pit. Well, that's great. And if you guys want to learn more or... Um donate or, or give something to the to the Bassa Village Foundation. It's Bassa B A S A Village Foundation USA.org. Don't miss that website. a uh, couple more questions for you before I let you be on with your day. Um after Bassa is, is rebuilt, do you plan on moving to other villages? Yeah. Um that is really the the dream that Nero and I dreamt. Um Back in 2008, when we first started, you know, working on the the school project, um, one of the things though I've learned about developing an organization is uh, if it's a one man show, eventually it's going to fall apart when the one man steps back. And so, um, within the, our foundation, um, we've had we've incorporated uh, we're tax exempt. Uh, 501c3, we have officers, a board of director, and corporate members. And as of January 1, uh, I'll be stepping down as president. Uh, I'll stay on the board, but uh, one of our original corporate members uh, and a guy who's been to Nepal with me a couple times named Joel Myers, who lives out in Seattle, Mm -hmm. he's going to take over as president. And we're you know, looking forward to having some new leadership. And to some extent, um, it'll, you know, Joel may uh, infuse, I hope, more energy, but uh, a similar vision in the direction of the foundation. Um, But he agrees with the philosophy, and he's been involved from almost from the beginning. Um, And he knows Nehru, and they've worked together. So, uh, you know, I I hope what I have gotten started will will last for a long, long time. But I also recognize that um, you know if it's going to last for a long, long time, it can't be just me running the show. And I'm involved with five other not for profits. <laughs> president of another one. Busy. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll be kind of glad to at least let go of some of the responsibilities for the BASA Foundation. Sure. Um, how can people help out that may not have the financial means? Is there a way that somebody can help without donating money? Um, they're really, the only other way costs money, which is to go trekking <laughs> um, with the Adventure Geotrex, because Adventure Geotrex you know, is the only real employer for the village. Um, and uh, of course, that means you got to pay to get to Nepal, which is not cheap. Sure. Even though the the trek the, the costs for a trek are by American standards surprisingly low. Like you can uh, go on a, a a two or three week trek for about a thousand dollars. Wow. But it'll probably cost you about two thousand in airfare. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, but. Yeah, because we do everything um, volunteer, but all of the real work um, in terms of like helping to rebuild the village, it's done by the local people. 
um, you know, the, the only really work we have that you could do here to help would be to do a fundraiser. I mean, if you, if you don't have funds to donate but you wanted to help and you were creative and energetic, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways uh, people that want to can raise money from other people. Uh, you know, we'd be delighted for that kind of help. Sure, I bet. Before I let you go, I had a couple of listener questions for you, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, one is, is there a profit margin to still be considered if you're running a nonprofit? Uh, there shouldn't be. I mean, by definition, there should be no profit. Now, most nonprofits have staff and overhead, and they have to, which they have to pay, and and some of them overpay. Like you know, you'll read stories about some so-called charity will be paying its its president a million dollars a year uh, to to call <laughs> himself president and sit right. in a fancy office. Okay, but. And in our case, we have no overhead. We don't have an office. We don't have paid staff. Every single dollar we raise goes over to Nepal to buy the materials for the villagers to use. Um, Which is nice to hear because so often you hear how little the money actually goes to the charity you're supporting. Well, that's right. And there's various websites, uh, and, and I'm sorry I don't have one off the top of my head, but they're easy to find uh, that will rate nonprofits and – will um you know some will e will even have the the ratio of what percent of a dollar actually goes to the charitable work versus what goes to the overhead of the of the organization and so we're you know we're we are really lucky because we've okay this is going to shock you our legal fees have even been um Volunteered. Our, we have a lawyer who's a friend of mine who's done all of our legal work, wow, and I wow. got to got to say his name because it's been such a great uh, a great gift he's given us. But a yeah. local lawyer here in Indianapolis named Chuck Richmond uh, donated all of his service to get us registered uh, as a five hundred one c three, and it's not an easy task. A lot of work involved. He's done our taxes every year, no charge. And our accounting has all been done by um, we actually another retired lawyer, well, another old friend of mine, um, and my cousin. Uh, two women are co-treasurers. You know, I always give the women uh, have them watch the pennies. Uh, they're <laughs> they're more trustworthy, uh, and so they they both have accounting experience, um, and so they've done all of our bookkeeping. So we haven't had to pay any money out for professional services. That's fantastic. And, and I guess that's the 1% you spoke of earlier about uh, the 99% of what you hear about lawyers is true. <laughs> there, that's right. There's that, your one. Uh, Chuck and, and then Candace uh, Vogel, our co-treasurer, the re other retired lawyer, they, they are in the 1% for sure. Yeah. Uh, another listener want to know how much work – and you sort of touched upon it. How much work is it to get a company to be a, a nonprofit? Uh, well, you have to incorporate, uh, and then you have to, get, if you want tax exempt status, uh, which so that your donors can take a tax deduction for their donations, you have to get uh, IRS approval 
Um, and so there's various hoops that you have to jump through, paperwork you have to do, and approvals to get uh, from, from the state level, the incorporation, and then at uh, the IRS federal level, the tax-exempt status. And then, of course, you have to do a tax return every year. Um, you, and as a corporation, you need to have at least one annual meeting uh, where your books are opened up, uh, re, you know, a report is given uh, to members. Um, but that's that's all. I mean, it's it's there's a fair amount of work in the beginning, which usually, in most cases, gets paid for. Um, you know, somebody will pay a, a lawyer to do um, most or all of that work. And then once that done, is done, you, there's just sort of a routine you can follow each year, and uh, it's as much or as little work as you want to make it. All right, you guys, uh, if you want to know more about Jeff himself, you can get him at jeffreyraisley.com. It's R-A-S-L-E-Y.com. You can find all his books. He talked about Godless, Living a Valuable Life Beyond Beliefs, as well as Bringing Progress to Paradise, what I got from going to, the, to a Himalayan village. He's got many more books. Uh, you can get that, like I said, jeffreyraisley.com, and I'll have the link on our website if you forget. And, of course, check out the Bassa Village Foundation, B-A-S-A Village Foundation, USA.org. If you have a couple of bucks to give over the holiday break, it's always nice to give a couple of bucks if you can. Jeff, thank you so much for, for telling us. You know, I was excited to talk to you, not only because I wanted to hear about your lawyer life and, and turn that into philanthropy, but uh, it turned into quite an interesting an educational experience about the, the Nepalese people and, and finding out about the village and, and the villagers. So thank you very much. Well, Greg, it's been a pleasure talking, and I, I feel like I've been flapping my jaw too much, and <laughs> I, I would have loved to hear more from you. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about the, especially the foundation, but um, also my experiences uh, and the books. So thanks a lot. I do appreciate it, man. Thanks again to Jeff for joining the show, telling us about his really inspiring life. If you want to know more about Jeff, don't forget Jeff Raisley. It's R-A-S-L-E-Y dot com. You can get some of his books there, such as Godless, Living a Valuable Life Beyond Beliefs, Bringing Progress to Paradise, What I Got from Giving to a Himalayan Village. Those are the couple we talked about. He's got five more on there, so make sure you check those out. You can get them on Facebook, facebook.com slash Jeff Raisley and at Jeff Raisley on Twitter. And hey, if you guys want to do something nice, go to BASA, B-A-S-A, Village Foundation, USA.org, and give a few bucks to the BASA Village Foundation. What Jeff and his team are doing is a really, really fantastic thing. And it's nice to see that they're not just throwing American dollars at the problem and, and saying, you know, have at it. They're, they're developing plans so it doesn't intrude too much into their lifestyle, and they're also still doing the work. The money is only paying for supplies. It's a great, great thing. I really, really like it and support it. But for now, I hope you guys enjoyed Jeff's story. I hope you enjoyed the show. 2016 has some really cool things coming up. We've got some interviews with a man that made a documentary that says the JFK situation is no conspiracy, and it's exactly how the government says it happened. I will be talking to a woman who is an exit guide, and what she does is sit with people while they end their life due to a disease. I'll also be talking with a for lack of a better term, love doctor. She has a psychology doctorate and has used the scientific method to uh, to help figure out relationships. Super interesting, not just your average relationship advice, quote-unquote, expert. 
Anyways, lots of stuff to look forward to. Thanks again. Hope you enjoyed this. I hope you've enjoyed 2015. If you want to find the show or tell a friend, of course, it's I want to know show.com. Facebook, it's facebook.com slash I want to know show. Follow us on Twitter at I want to know show. And of course, please send some email. I want to know pod at gmail.com. That's all for me. You guys have a fantastic 2016. I'll be talking to you very soon. And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.